Gerald Pollack, professor of bioengineering at the University of Washington, joined the Thunderbolts Project podcast team following his presentation at the recent Electric Universe 2013 conference. He talks about some of his research on the mysterious fourth state of water, often called structured water, or exclusion zones, which manifest by the exposure of water to light. The implications of his research are important to the future of medicine, energy, and more. The Thunderbolts Project podcast is pleased to introduce Dr. Gerald Pollack. We study water, and uh, one of the things that, that we found is that you know, we all learned that water has uh, three phases. Has a, uh, one phase is the solid phase, the liquid phase, and the vapor phase. And what we found is that there is an intermediate phase. You might call it a fourth phase. And this fourth phase is in between the solid phase and the liquid phase. Oh, first of all, I should say that the idea that water has a fourth phase is not new. It's 100 years old. Uh, it was suggested by a famous physical chemist 100 years ago. And uh, it also has been suggested that this phase has been variously known as uh, structured water, ordered water, crystalline water, what have you. We finally had an opportunity to study it in, in detail, uh, starting about seven or eight years ago. And um, we found that there's a lot of it. We found that it's different from liquid or solid. And also we found that it fills your cells. Uh, it's been known for some time that that it, the the water inside your cells is not merely like um, this glass of water here, but it's actually structured or ordered. And the reason it's structured is that it it that the cell is filled with protein surfaces, and those protein surfaces. Um, order the water, and they can order the water out to a, a huge dimension. And so the cell is filled with this stuff. And so your cells, my cells, all of our cells is filled with this fourth phase of water. One of the most interesting features is that this is not just water. It's not neutral. It's actually charged. And it's charged, usually negatively charged, and the water that lies behind it is positively charged. So it's a bit like a battery. You have a negative charge inside this water and positive charge outside. Equally interesting is, you know, in order to, like, if you have to recharge a battery, usually you need energy to recharge the battery, and the energy for recharging or for charging comes from light. We found that if you add light, particularly of certain wavelengths, but all light does it, this zone, this area of uh, easy water, we call it, or structured water, builds from light. So it builds up and separates charge, and so it's, it's, it's a bit like photosynthesis. You know, in, in, in plants, what happens is that the light energy is absorbed, and what this does in the plant is it separates the charges uh, in water. It breaks up water into the negative and positive, and the plant uses this to do work. It, it's chemical energy, charge separation, that's used to produce bending, growth, metabolism, what have you. So there's a possibility that we may actually photosynthesize, maybe not all the steps of photosynthesis, but at least the first step of photosynthesis, which is in fact 100% efficient. So we might actually, we might actually use this, this uh, kind of energy that comes from outside to build this water inside our cells, in a sense, nourish us. This kind of flow, it's possible it's possible that if you think about what goes on in, in your body, in, in the uh, capillaries of, of your body, 
The capillaries are really small, and it's been shown that the capillary diameter is smaller than the diameter of the red blood cells. So red blood cells are six or seven micro, micrometers, and some of the capillaries are two or three micrometers. So nature, is, in a peculiar way, has, has made it difficult. It, you have to push these, somehow push these red blood cells through these very narrow tubes, and they have to distort. And if you look at images of red blood cells or blood going through these small vessels, they contort and, and they bend. So when you, have, when, you, when you take a big object and try to stuff it through a small vessel, it takes a lot of energy. There's a lot of resistance involved. And some people have suggested that you know, while the heart obviously drives the blood through the cardiovascular system, through the arteries and the large vessels, when it comes down to the small vessels, some people have computed the amount of, of pressure that the heart would need to develop in order to do this. And the calculations, I'm not sure if they're exactly right, but they came up with something like a million times the pressure that the heart actually develops. That's what would be required to send the blood through your small vessels. So it seems like there must be a helper, some kind of energy that is helping the heart to do this, to, to get the blood through the small vessels. And the possibility is this kind of energy that I've been talking about because, uh, you know, there are lots of blood vessels just beneath the skin and the light passes through the skin pretty easily. You can, you can take your hand in a dark room, take a flashlight, and you can see the light coming through the other. So, so I mean, it, it will easily go through, depending on the wavelength, uh, millimeters, centimeters. And all that light gets to your blood, to your small blood vessels. So... I wouldn't be suggesting it if we hadn't seen it in the laboratory that uh, this light drives flow through tubes. So uh, your small vessels are simply tubes. They receive light. Why don't they help drive it? Well, probably they do. We don't know how much. This needs to be studied. But it's possible that just like plants, they're getting energy from the environment to drive them. We may do the same. Now, of course, nobody thinks that humans or animals photosynthesize, but you know, if you were creating life, if you were the creator, and you did such a good job with plants, what the hell? Why wouldn't you use the same mechanism for higher, uh, well, higher, so to speak, animals? It makes a lot of sense. So I think this is, a, this is a, an area for the future to see whether this is really the case. I think it might be. Well, nafion is an interesting polymer, and um, it has the capacity to build this kind of uh, ordered water very nicely, so we've adopted this. And uh, early on, we used nafion to see this fourth phase of water. And the way you can see it is that this phase excludes practically everything. It certainly excludes particles and microspheres and even small molecules. We've been able to document molecules down to the size of about 100 or probably even less. So it, it, it turned out to be really simple. You put a piece of nafion in a chamber, um, and you add water with particles, with microspheres. And you look to see what happens. And what happens is that the water that's, uh, or the region that's adjacent to the nafion ejects those microspheres. So they march away, and they go farther and farther away. And after, oh, half a minute or a minute, you find a, a zone that has no microspheres left. And so we call that the exclusion zone because it excludes microspheres. And that zone is, is, is what we, we call the fourth phase or easy water. So there's another way that turns out to be pretty interesting. You can get the nafion in the form of a tube. The tube is like a straw, 
made of a material that is so-called hydrophilic or water-loving. And we found, or actually, not we, a student, an undergraduate student in the laboratory have found that if you stick this tube inside the water, um, what happens is that you get flow. It's like water moving through a straw. But there's nothing obvious to drive the water to go through, through the tube. So, of course, you can't get something for nothing, so there's got to be some energy that drives the flow through the tube. And we found that it's the energy that I was talking about a, a moment ago. It's the, the light energy, or so-called radiant energy, absorbed by the water, and then changed or transduced into a kind of charge separation that drives this flow. So we're making use of energy from the environment to drive this flow. It's amazing. This is free energy, you, you might say, because the, the wavelengths that we use, well, light is, is actually fairly powerful, but the most powerful are the infrared wavelengths. That's just beyond what you can see. So, uh, for example, light at wavelengths of one, two, three micrometers. And they're really powerful in driving this kind of flow. So, we set up the flow. We used the Nafion tube and actually other kinds of tubes. And we found recently, if we added more light, uh, more radiant energy, the flow got faster. So it really works. You just, uh, the more light you add, the faster the flow. So it's kind of cool. You mentioned in your talk yesterday that the properties that you've been studying are responsible for the cohesion of sandcastles. Does that mean that we've been living in, in a world where science did not know what held sandcastles together until recently? <laughs> well, well, Albert St. I, I remember having read a book by Albert St. Georgie, uh, who was the, the father of modern biochemistry. And in one of his books, he talks about this. So I think maybe I stole this from him. Uh, he was talking about walking on the beach. He said, well, you know, when you walk on the beach, your, your feet sink deeply into the dry sand. But if you walk on the beach right near the water, your feet don't sink in. So what's going on? And he said that, that the water actually it forms the glue between the sand particles. It wasn't clear at that time how the water forms the glue. And I think we now understand because it has to do with charge separation. It's a bit like the electric universe. Again, you know, charges are involved. So you have one particle of, of sand and you have water around it and you form a layer of exclusion zone around the sand particle that's negatively charged. And we know that beyond that are positive charges. So you have negative, positive, and you have the same thing with all the sand particles. So they stick together because negative and positive attract one another, keeps it tight. And I think this principle really applies throughout nature. It's, um, I mentioned the like, likes, like idea. So you have, you have two uh, entities, and they both have the same charge. And of course, everybody would think, well, they have the same charge, so they're going to repel each other and, and go far away. But what happens, especially if you put it in water, that opposite charges gather in between, and the opposite charges pull them together. So the observation is when you put particles, sand particles, any particles in water, they actually come together. They don't move apart. And this is a very important principle that I think applies from the level of the atom to the level of, of the cosmos, this like-likes-like principle. So simple, so basic, and I think so, so pervasive that it's everywhere. So this is something that needs to be thought of. You know, physicists give the reflexive opinion where you have two negative charges. Of course, they're going to go apart. And when you start with that premise, you get 
complicated answers or wrong answers. Because you can just see, you put the two particles together. We did an experiment with this. It's not new for us, the, the fact that the like-charged particles come closer together. But we, char- we tried it with big particles, separated by fairly large distance by, by atomic or molecular standards, something like half a millimeter. And sure enough, they come together. You know, some of them do it spontaneously. Sometimes you have to kind of tap from the bottom to, to release the adhesion of the particles to the bottom. They come up and they come closer together. They come down again, you tap, they come closer together until they touch. It's really astonishing that like-charged particles come together. This probably has something to do with the origin of life, too. You know, you can imagine a, a primitive planet with molecules spread all over. Nobody knows what because we weren't there. But uh, th- there are some molecules or particles. But in order to get life, these spread out molecules and particles don't quite do it. You need, have to some- you need something to come together to form a, a cohesive entity like a cell or a gel or some pre-cell. So how does it work? Well, the like-likes-like mechanism does it. Um, you have the particles, they're the same particles, and they inevitably come together. And this is all driven by the sun, driven by light. So all you really need for the origin of life, step one, is sun, molecules, and water. And then they'll come together to form some entity. It's possible that life might actually be, be being created just outside, everywhere, first step. That it's an inevitability rather than some special event that came together. So out in the cosmos, a lot of energy, a lot of electrical energy, radiant energy, and it's easy that life could form. There's water, there's energy, and molecules. So it's possible, maybe almost inevitable. (laughs) And have you done any measurements uh, as to the strength of this force uh, (laughs) or... What effects this force? Does it vary by uh, mass or charge? Well, we 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 haven't we haven't measured uh, the well. Actually, we have measured. Um, um, but I think you want to know uh, force per unit charge or something like that. We haven't gotten there, but we have taken a piece of uh, nafion that creates an exclusion zone, attach it to a bendable lever, right? Now, so you put all this in water and attached to the piece of nafion should be a negative exclusion zone. That's all kind of one, one entity. But protons out there. So you have the positive protons, you have the negative charge of the exclusion zone. They should attract. They should come toward one another. And sure enough, when we do that, this lever that contains the nafion bends in the direction of the positive charge. So, so there is a force. We computed the force, but it, uh, I don't remember what the numbers were, and it's really hard to relate to the force per unit charge. But it's substantial. Uh, I remember reading Don Scott's book about this, and I was amazed. Uh, he said, well, you take two negative and positive particles, and you put them a certain distance apart, right? and the gravitational pull is, is a certain value. But if this is positive and this is negative, then the electrostatic force exceeds that, exceeds the gravitational pull by 10 to the 38th. So how big is 10 to the 38th? Well, I think, if I remember correctly, the ratio of the diameter of a proton to the solar system is 10 to the 19th. This is 10 to the 38th, you see. So it means that gravitational forces are, you know, they're, they're trivial. Uh, the charge forces absolutely dominate 
And I think charged forces dominate uh, almost everything. Uh, I think the electric universe people are right on about this, that it, it's charge that, that really matters, and they have a lot of evidence for it. And I think in biology, the same thing applies. And people have not really taken into account the effects of charge. Very, very important on all this. Have you had any experience with trying to ground the water supply that you're looking at this effect with to see if it's affected as opposed to being insulated from the Earth? You mean a ground present in the chamber as we measure the exclusion zone? In the water, so that the water is grounded. You know, I don't think we ever tried that. Um, but, um, no, it's a very interesting, uh, interesting idea. The reason that I ask is that Bob Johnson was in here, sitting in that seat, and he was talking about work that he's doing with trees and pulling sap from the leaves down the trunk, and he uh, calculated that there's another type of cellular action that pulls that process down that has to do with the negative energy in the earth, pulling the positively charged sucrose particles down these chambers, much like you talked about the capillaries pulling yeah. red blood cells through. And he said that that was the plant using the negative energy of the planet as an aid in pulling the positive charge down. Yeah, that 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 could well be that that. Was just um, except that um, you know, you're talking about the flown uh, vessels, and some of the flown vessels don't go down; they actually go uh, sideways or True. up. <laughs> you see, so so it might be relevant for some, but I I'm I'm not sure if it's relevant for all. But um, I I know the work that you're talking about, and the person uh, who he's collaborating with, and who I also dealing with, his name is Martin Canny, and he's the pioneer in the field of vascular flow in plants. And he found out about exclusion zones about four or five years ago, and he decided to inquire as to whether the xylem tubes, you know, the ones that take the water from and up to the top of tall trees, whether they actually had exclusion zones, and then because if so, then there's charge separation, and then the flow in the xylem could be just like the tubes that I mentioned uh, a moment ago, you see. And so he did the experiment. He took some tissue, some, some xylem tissue, and he, he put some particles in, and he looked with electron microscopy to see, and the particles actually avoided the, uh, the edges. So he said, yes, there is an exclusion zone there. All the particles are in the central core, and they're excluded from the edges. So it looks like that's true. Uh, so I think the exclusion zone and, and the charge separation is absolutely central for all the flows that occur in, the, in these plants. We're nearing the end of the conference. What is your impression of having been here and the people that you've met? I think this is uh, one of the most exciting conferences that I've been to. Um, we, we, we organize conferences on water each year, and the, the conferences on water are really exciting. This one was just as exciting, maybe even more so, because uh, the water meeting is just about water, and this is about many different aspects. And I heard paper after paper of uh, really intelligent, thoughtful, creative contributions from so many people. I learned so much from the meeting. So I think this is absolutely exceptional. In fact, I haven't been able to check my email because the sessions have been so interesting. <laughs> so great meeting. Where do you see your work going from here? Health. Water and health. Your grandmother told you when you were sick, drink water, right? And, and that's been going through the ages. Well, it turns out that, that um, there's more to it than, than just hydrating yourself. There are a lot of waters that are produced that are energized in certain ways. Many different people produce different kinds of waters. And um, I think since water is in, inside your cells, easy water particularly, is critical 
for, for biological function. If you have some dysfunction, like a pathology or some abrasion or whatever, you have to build it back up again. And a lot of these waters that I believe contain easy water, if they're energized, they produce this easy, are able to restore that water inside your cells and, and make you healthy again. Um, so we'd like to test some of these waters objectively to find out. So we're planning to do it in the future. We need some funding to do it, and actually serious funding, because to do it right, and we want to do animal tests, we want to do tests on people, we want to do tests on animals with tumors, animals with kidney dysfunction, whatever, give them different kinds of waters and see if some of these waters are more curative than others. I think this is the future of medicine. It's very important, and we'd like to be there because we know something about water. Thank you so much for appearing with us. Yeah, my pleasure. Great to be here.